So this morning we are continuing our summer sermon series uh, on the life and character of King David. Um, And this morning we turn our attention to one of my favorite accounts in this collection, which is the story of David and Mephibosheth. Um, At first glance, if you're reading chronologically through the book, it may seem uh, oddly placed as it is a tender account of David's love and mercy sandwiched between two uh, pretty blood-soaked battle accounts in the chapters on either side of it. Um, and it's true that the, um, the author of the books of Samuel does, does maybe seem to be cobbling things together somewhat randomly, at least on the surface. Um, but what I think he's actually doing is pointing us to this transition now in David's life uh, between him being a full-time warrior... Um, and and, and a, a man with no spare time on his hands to uh, being a king, which is the place where things take a turn for the worst in his life. Um, but we're not quite there yet. And as I said, for today, we get to bask in this beautiful passage, um, showing David at his very best. This is uh, the David, the man described as the man after God's own heart on full display. Um, And it's also God's covenantal love being brilliantly illustrated for us in an image that we can actually relate to. Which I I believe is actually ultimately the point of the passage. So um, God's steadfast, covenantal, loving kindness, the word in Hebrew is chesed, but it's, it's not just love. That's why we use all these qualifiers for it. Um, sorry. Um, yes, yeah, so that's what's being reflected here in David's move towards Mephibosheth. This is not meanness uh, of, a, of a mere man. It is the kindness of God, as it says in the text, that's being uh, displayed. And this is just what we need because David, at least thus far uh, in our texts, that we've been exploring has been such an exemplary character, right? It's easy to imagine that God would make promises to and bless such a person as David. But what about the rest of us? Right? You see, we desperately need to be reminded. uh, Paul Tripp coined a phrase, uh, gospel amnesia, he called it. And I think it's really appropriate. We are so prone to forget what God has promised and to slide back into a fear-based, work, works-based religion. And so in this passage, we get the reminder that we need. We see these three things illustrated for us. They are the surprising object of God's love, the right response to God's love, and the intended result of God's love. All right, so the surprising object of the right response to and the intended result of God's love. All right, the way our passage open uh, clues us into the fact that it's tightly connected to chapter 7, which is the chapter that Pastor Paul preached on last week. And in in that sermon, we heard that uh, David, finally having had the opportunity to sit back and take a breath in his newly established uh, capital city, he's asking, what's the next great thing I can do? Asking, what's the next great thing I can do? Um, He's reached the pinnacle of human success, but instead of 
resting on his laurels, instead of enjoying the fruit of his many victories, he takes a look around and he asks, what can I do for God who has been so good to me? Um, and as Paul explained, Pastor Paul explained last week, uh, David wanted to build this temple for God, but God said, I don't need you to build me a house. How about this? I'm going to build you a dynasty. Um, and so here, this chapter picks up where that one left off because the Lord has passed on the building of the temple. David continues looking around, and now he asks, you know, since I've been this undeserving recipient of such radical love, who can I extend this same kind of love to? I wonder if there's anyone left of my enemy's household that I could extend this kind of unexpected grace toward. And so this is the question that David is asking himself as the passage opens. And it turns out that there's this man named Ziba. Uh, and Ziba is a former servant in the household of Saul, uh, likely, uh, likely a lead staff member in the palace, I would assume, um, judging by how he's spoken about. Um, and somehow Ziba uh, is brought in to see David, and David asks him, is there anyone of Saul's household remaining? Now, it's tempting to speculate about Ziba's intentions in telling David that Mephibosheth is alive and where he is. Um, after all, later in this story, uh, he's going to try and sell Mephibosheth out as a traitor again for personal gain. So uh, he reveals his true colors, and he's not a very honorable man. But at least at this point in the story, the author doesn't seem too concerned about why he did it. He simply wants us to know that he did do it. So Ziba says to the king in verse 3, uh, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So Jonathan has the son named Mephibosheth. The first thing we learn about him is that he is crippled in both his feet. It's also the very last thing that the author reminds us of in his text. At the very end of verse 13, it ends with, now he was lame in both his feet. Um, and so clearly, the author does not want us to miss this fact about Mephibosheth. And you have to remember that uh, 3,000 years ago, um, the world was not very accessible. Uh, there were no motorized wheelchairs. There was nothing, uh, certainly, that even remotely resembled a manual wheelchair. And, um, and you have to remember also, the author is clear that neither one of Ziba's feet work. Right? He's functionally a, a paraplegic, so he couldn't hobble along with a crutch or a cane either, which requires at least one functional leg. So what this means is that in that time, someone crippled like Mephibosheth would be utterly dependent on others, completely helpless to provide for himself and his most basic needs. He would have needed to be carried wherever he went. Now consider the culture that he lives in. He lives in a violent culture where war is the norm and nations gain and lose territory regularly. In that kind of a culture, you have to be ready to fight or to flee at any given moment. And, of course, Mephibosheth is unable to stand and fight. He's also unable to turn and run. And if neither fight nor flight are legitimate options, 
That means that he was cursed to live in perpetual fear. Because when danger eventually did arrive at his doorstep, it was a fairly safe bet that the staff that he has not been able to pay for the last 15 years are not going to put their own lives on the line to save him. And so Mephibosheth is not only physically crippled, but he's emotionally broken as well. As far as anyone was concerned, he's a dead man living on borrowed time. And we see that he feels this way about himself, at least in the fact that when he first meets David, he refers to himself as a dead dog. But the second thing we learn about Mephibosheth from Ziba is this. He's in the house of Mahir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Now, nothing really is known about Mahir, the son of Emil, except what we can gather from this text and the one other place that he appears in Scripture, and that is when David is on the run from his own son Absalom later. Uh, uh, Mahir, son of Emil, is one of the men who shows up at their encampment and brings supplies for them when they're in hiding. But here in this text, we see that he is obviously Mephibosheth's benefactor. He has taken this destitute former royal who is in hiding, who is incapable of providing for himself, into his home in a sort of uh, witness protection kind of arrangement. And so all we can say about him with any uh, confidence is that he's an honorable man. He's taken a, a, a tremendous amount of risk on himself with no promise of being repaid for any of it. And his home is in a place called Lodabar, which literally means no word. There is nothing to say about Lodabar. It is a nothing backwater town that has been all but completely forgotten about by history. And we can only speculate as to its original location at this point. And so anonymity is the whole point, right? Mephibosheth is in hiding. He is living as a nameless, faceless, crippled man in a nothing town that no one has heard of, and he's hoping that it stays that way. Because the third thing we know about Mephibosheth is that he is Saul's grandson. Simply being born into Saul's household, it would have been understood that he was a sworn enemy of David. And after all, this is why he is crippled in the first place. The first time we actually meet Mephibosheth is all the way back in chapter 4. And there he's a five-year-old boy when Saul and his sons are killed on Mount Gilboa. And when word first arrives back at Saul's palace that the king and his sons are all dead, the entire staff goes into a panic and they all flee because... Anyone associated with that name in that household would have been killed by the Philistines. No one would have been spared. And they didn't have any reason to believe that David would have any mercy on them either at that point. And so Mephibosheth's nursemaid picks him up and tries to run away with him. And somewhere along the way, the tragic accident happens. He falls and both of his ankles are mangled beyond repair. And obviously in their haste, there's no time to properly treat them or care for them. And so they, they don't heal properly and they remain permanently damaged. So by all accounts, Mephibosheth is this 
helpless, worthless nobody from nowhere, and a sworn enemy of David by birth. Now this text, um, I think anyway, is, is unashamedly obvious in its implications, and so I'm not going to be too uh, artful about this connection. <laughs> the reality is that these are the kinds of people that God likes to seek out and extend covenant love to. Right? Romans 5, Paul says this. He says, while we were still weak, you could say while we were lame, while we were helpless, while we were dependent, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? It says God, he goes on, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And later he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Helpless, worthless, nobodies, enemies of God, are the surprising object of his love time and time again. And you know, when Jesus walked on the earth, he ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And when he was ridiculed for this by the religious elites, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we are all Mephibosheths. <laughs> we are the surprising objects of God's love. All right, which brings us to our second point, which is the right response to God's love. Uh, verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mahir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes for a moment. From his earliest memories, he has been taught to fear David. He's been told that David is the sworn enemy of their household. He's heard the stories of David, this mighty warrior who wipes out all those who stand in opposition to him. He has been hiding from this man all his life. And now, he's been summoned to come before him. And so in his mind, there can only be one thing coming. He's heading towards his sure and certain uh, execution. And he's unable to fight, and he's unable to flee. And so when he arrives there at David's palace, he's laid out prostrate on his face in terror before David. And he's terrified because he understands very well the reality of the situation that he's in. He, uh, he has every reason to be terrified. Because he does not yet understand that David had made a covenant and that that covenant had completely changed their relationship. And of course, the covenant I'm referring to is the one that he made with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, all the way back in 1 Samuel 20, where the last uh, verse of that passage reads this. It says, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, 
and between your offspring and my offspring forever. Mephibosheth does not yet understand that this covenant is dictating the terms of the relationship between himself and David. And so the author begins to make it clear for us. First, notice the change in the language of communication. Up until this point, uh, David's communication has been primarily with Ziba. And the way, the, the, the way those exchanges have been described, the way they've been um, uh, captured here uh, in verses 2 to 4, you know, it's, and the king said to him, and the king said, and Ziba said to the king, and the king said to him, and Ziba said to the king, over and over again, right? So it's the king and Ziba. There's a hierarchy here. There is a, there's a, a gap or a divide in class and power that cannot be transgressed. And yet when we get to verse 6, the author writes, and David said, Mephibosheth. The author is signaling a familial relationship between these two men. He's putting them on even ground. David calls him by his name, a name that he's been running from for 15 years. And there is no hint of animosity or hesitation in him at all. And it's as if it doesn't quite register with Mephibosheth at first, as he's laying there on his face, trembling, swearing allegiance. I'm your servant, he says, right? He doesn't even hear these words. The unexpected beauty of that greeting wasn't quite powerful enough to cut through the trauma of 15 years of dreading this day. And so David continues. Verse 7 says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. It's got nothing to do with station. It's got nothing to do with name. David says, I made a promise to show you kindness. And I take my promises seriously. And with these words, terror begins to give way to confusion. And Mephibosheth asks in verse 8, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And this is a natural and an appropriate response to being confronted by this kind of radical covenantal, unearned love. The kind that says there is nothing in all the universe that can come between you and I simply because I made a promise long ago and I intend to keep it. Remember, this is how David himself responded to God's covenant promises to him in chapter 7 as well. Chapter 7 verse 18 said, this is David, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. And since we too are helpless 
worthless nobody, enemies of God, we too have every reason to fear and tremble when he comes knocking. But just as David assures Mephibosheth with these words, fear not, we see these same words all over scripture. In fact, in its various different forms and constructions, fear not is the most repeated command in all of scripture. And it typically is the word of God to his people spoken through an angel or a prophet or on the lips of Jesus himself. And it's always meant to assuage the fear and terror that accompanies our inner sense of unworthiness to be the recipient of such incredible love. He assures us of the security that we have despite our helplessness and our vulnerability before him. And so we too ought to be perplexed by his radical covenantal love for us. Now the song we're going to sing after the sermon, the fourth verse begins uh, like this. It says, two wonders here do I confess. Two things, my worth and my unworthiness. How can these two things be true at the same time? Right? Um, another favorite hymn of mine, uh, How Deep the Father's Love. One of the verses, uh, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. I do not understand how this can be. I cannot comprehend it. But thank the Lord that this is the way that he chooses to relate to us. And this sense of grateful confusion is the right response to God's love toward us. We know we don't deserve it, and yet we believe him when he says it's ours. It's a perplexing paradox of grace. All right. This brings me to the third point, which is the intended result of God's love. This is largely application. So this unimaginable, undeserved loving kindness has a twofold result. We see in verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, All right, further down, So Mephibosheth ate at the, David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And those and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. So first, and most obviously, Mephibosheth himself is restored as an individual. He lives in a royal city. He eats at the table of a king, not as a guest, not out of charity, not out of pity, but the text says, like one of the king's own sons. One minute Mephibosheth is helpless, destitute, crippled, with no family name that he could draw on for reputation or security. And the next, he lives and dines in a palace as royalty with all the benefits of the king's name attached to him. Though he was an enemy, he's treated as the sweetest friend. And it doesn't stop with him. And that's what I mean by the 
twofold result of, of this covenant love. Yes, there's an individual restoration, and that is important, but David could have stopped there, right? In reality, David didn't have to go this far in order to honor his responsibility to Jonathan. Uh, if he were merely trying to make good on his uh, responsibility to Jonathan, he could have just set Mephibosheth. It was going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> Um, he could have just set Mephibosheth up with a caretaker and an allowance somewhere out of sight. Could have left him in Lodabar for the rest of his life. At least he would have been taken care of and he could say he fulfilled his responsibilities. But he doesn't do that. Right? Instead, he restores Mephibosheth's inheritance to him. All the land and wealth that had previously belonged to Saul, he now puts in Mephibosheth's name. This means that he now has a means of accumulating generational wealth and security. And that's important because we see in this verse, it's like a, it's like a throwaway little line in, this, in these verses that he has a son named Micah, and now his son too will be taken care of. He has an inheritance. He too will be set for life. But it's not even stopping there at just blood relatives Right? And we see in verse 9 that the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, had said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 servants, they now get restored to their place, the place that they held in Saul's palace, right? They get to manage this royal household again and live off of it. They have security in it, just like when Saul had been king. So because David shows radical covenantal love to Mephibosheth, Ziba's whole household is restored as well. You see, the restoration of the individual and the provision of an inheritance spills over into blessing for others. Everyone left who is associated with the house of Saul now prospers because Mephibosheth has been made to prosper. God showed love to David and it spilled over in blessing for Mephibosheth. Then David shows love to Mephibosheth, and it spills over in blessing to Ziba and his whole household, and on and on it goes. This is the intended result of God's covenantal love. Remember when God first made covenant with Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, he said this, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Church, God's love always functions this way. We love because he has first loved us. There can be no ulterior motives because of that. There can be no strings or limitations attached church 
ought to be a place of perpetual and abundant blessing spilling over to all who come into contact with her. My friends, we were the lame ones. We were the destitute, the nameless, the faceless, the enemies of the king. But now, because of Jesus Christ, we feast at the same king's table. We are now called sons and daughters. We have an inheritance in heaven that cannot be taken from us simply because long, long ago he said he would do it and he is faithful. Now we have the privilege of demonstrating this unimaginable covenantal love of God to the world around us. As the writer of Hebrews says, let's not, or rather, let's Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's remind one another of these things. Let's fulfill our end of the responsibility. All right. Um, and obviously it's our hope that in that, through all that, that the God who is love the God who is the author of this kind of unearned, unexpected grace and blessing would be known and praised everywhere and at all times. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we bow before you in awe at your goodness, your faithfulness, and your provision for all your people throughout history. Lord, your promises are sure and your mercies are new every day. Press these truths deep into our hearts and fill us with that sense of grateful awe and wonder that comes from holding these truths firmly. Lord, make it spill over in blessing for all who we come into contact with. And may you receive all the glory and the honor and the praise because of it. Amen.